as a child of God, you recognize that it is your responsibility, but it's also your privilege to obey God. And that's really what this comes down to as we look at this text this morning. If you have children yourself, you want your children to obey you, but you also love them, but you want them to enjoy that obedience. You don't simply rule with an iron fist in an effort to produce behavior change in them, behavior modification, requiring certain conduct of them and disciplining them out of anger and hatred because of a lack of willingness to engage in that. You love your kids. You want what's best for them. You desire for them to experience the joy of obedience. You want to protect them. You don't want to see a little child run out into the street. So you teach them from a young age to not do that. What do you say? Look both ways before you cross the street. Just yesterday, my two littlest children were about to come across the street. And my, you know, the three-year-old, he really didn't get it at all. But my five-year-old, you know, sometimes it seems like he does, sometimes he doesn't. So what we've, what we've caught him doing, but he'll walk up to the street and he'll go, you know, just kind of shake his head back and forth, and he's fulfilled the obligation. There's a sense in which uh, he's uh, being obedient, and yet deep within, his heart's not in it at all. And I think probably, for the most part, is he just doesn't understand the danger. When you or I ignore a prohibition, a negative command, a command to not do something, chances are we're not thinking of the consequences. Chances are we're thinking of the immediate fleeting joy that comes from that activity or from that conduct or from that heart attitude, right? Sometimes we revel in heart attitudes, which are clear and black and white rejections of what God has commanded about what our heart attitudes should be. And we're not thinking about the consequences. We're not thinking about the damage to those that we love. We're not thinking about how it defames the Lord. And we're probably not thinking at all about how it will trouble us in the long run. What we're thinking about is how good it feels right now. So these prohibitions in the Word of God are not there to make your life or my life less enjoyable. They're actually to make them more enjoyable. And it's not a wrong thing to say, well, one reason that we should obey this command is because God has given us His command. But there's more to it than that. And I think, you'll, I think you'll enjoy this text. It's probably not a text that you've looked at before thinking, I think I'm going to enjoy this. Maybe you're not thinking that this morning, but I think you will. I believe you will. Let's look at it together. Let's read it together. And you can read silently as I... Read aloud verse 13 through 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. But use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So let me ask you where is your allegiance? Is your allegiance to God or is it to man? Do you intrinsically, deliberately, kind of by default, obey God when you first awaken in the morning and throughout the details of your life throughout the day? Or are you more committed to not just obeying, but pleasing man. Some might say you can't do both. You can only please God. You can't please man. Others would say, well, if I'm going to please man, then that's going to mean that I can't possibly 
please God. And even in the book of Galatians that we spent a great deal of time going through, you see Paul ask the question as he is admonishing the Galatians for abandoning the gospel, abandoning God, embracing a false gospel, the false gospel of legalism. And he, he asks them the question, do you think that I've become a man who simply desires to please man? Is that what you think about me? Paul was speaking the truth in love to the Galatians. And so he was able, because they knew him and he was trustworthy, he was able then to ask them the question, do you think I'm suddenly a person who fears man, who simply wants to please man? Do you think I've changed that much since you and I got to know each other? Is it possible that you can be a person who pleases God and pleases man for much of the time? I think the martyr mindset, which, by the way, there's no reason for you or I to have, but the martyr mindset in the context in which it doesn't belong would say, I'm here to please God, and therefore I can't please man. I think you'll see that that's contrary to what Peter teaches and what the Bible teaches. Some will say this in response to the command to obey the laws of the land. I serve a higher authority. I've actually heard someone say that in the midst of being held accountable for being obedient to the laws of man. I, I serve God. I don't serve man. It sounds very righteous, doesn't it? This section of Peter's letter begins with a treatise on submission. This is about submission. He deals here with governmental authority. And a little bit further into the book of 1 Peter, he deals with the slave-master relationship. And just to give you a little bit of insight into that, it's not just how we would apply it to say that this has more to do with the employee-employer relationship in our culture. That's really more of what it was like even then, more of a, an employee-employer relationship. The Bible does not condone 18th century American slavery nor any type of servanthood of that sort where people are abused. You will hear people say today, well, how can you believe the Bible? You just pick and choose the things you want to believe. You believe the things that seem right. But what about slavery in the Bible? The Bible does not condone the kind of slavery that you and I think of when we think of what took place 200 and so 200 or so years ago, 150 years ago in our country. That was deplorable. God hated it, hates it. And it's uh, in no way acceptable and in no way likened to that which we see in the Scripture when it comes to the concept of slavery. Peter then deals with submission in the marital relationship, and I think we might see your thinking turned on its ear with regard to what that is. Let me just remind you what I said earlier, and that is that when God gives a command, whether it's a positive command, a command to do something, or a prohibition uh, to do uh, to stop doing something, regardless of what it is, it's for the better good of the persons to whom he gives that command. And so when God says submit, it's not because you are of lesser value than the person that you're called to submit to. It's not that there's a hierarchy in humankind that God has established. It is that God knows what's best, and he's established a pattern for how that's going to be fleshed out in our lives. And it's a great joy to see that and embrace it. As we look at this text this morning, as I said, it's really a joy for me to bring this to you. My job is to be the waiter. God's the chef. He has produced the meal that should feed the sheep. As free people, it is God's will that you submit to the government, silence slanderers, and serve him. And thus the title this morning, Freedom to Serve. That's really what we're looking at. We're really looking at the freedom 
to serve. That's a, that sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like a contradiction. Freedom to serve. Uh, when a person has freedom, he doesn't have to serve. When a person is free, he's no longer a slave. And yet the Bible calls us to the freedom to serve as a slave because now we want to. We're now free to do that which we want to do because God has produced that want, that desire, that joy in us. And I, I believe as we unfold this text together, you will see that as, as I will as well. Point number one, in an effort to, as free people, recognize that it's God's will that we submit to the government, silence slanders, and serve him. Point number one, the mandate. The mandate. You say, what in the world is a mandate? It's a command. You've heard that uh, your employer has called you to a mandatory meeting. He's mandating that you go to this meeting. The mandate is, in verse 13, submit yourselves. Pretty clear? We don't really need to spend a lot of time on this. The word means to submit, to obey, to bring under control, to place under to be subordinate to. It means follow the rules. Obey the rules. And by submitting, you're serving God. By submitting, by obeying the command to submit, by submitting to the command to submit, you're serving God. Developing a heart attitude that says that this is what I want to do because my father has called me to do it. My father loves me. He wants what's best for me. And so he's called me to that which is going to glorify him and result in my better good. Point number two, the motive. The motive. It's for the Lord's sake. Don't you love that? Peter's so clear. I love this about Peter, about Paul, about John. We get these commands in the scripture, and almost before we've had an opportunity to start asking the question about where it is, bang, the motive pops up. The, the, the desire that should be in the heart that uh, should necessarily result in changed conduct, obedient, submissive conduct. So here it is, it's for the Lord's sake. So well, I can handle that. I mean, I love the Lord. I love the Lord because the Lord loves me. The Lord has poured his love out upon me. I'm grateful for that. I, I'm humbled by that. I'm overjoyed by that, right? Those are your words. Wouldn't you say those things? I want the Lord to be pleased for the Lord's sake. I can, I can do that. If this is truly for the Lord's sake, and it's pretty clear that it is, that's the way Peter qualifies it. It's for the Lord's sake that you should submit. This is the motive. This command to submit is not some sidebar issue that Peter throws in here as an unfortunate mandate that we have to obey but must be miserable over. By the way, it's an exclusive Christian privilege to find favor with God and silence the slanders through submission to the government. It is the will of God, and it is for his sake. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 1 to 3, Peter speaks of those who are chosen. Remember that? Those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Listen to this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be whom? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter hasn't changed directions in terms of who he's trying to exalt. This is all for the Lord's sake. Peter writes his letter for the Lord's sake. He writes it out of love for the Lord that the Lord would be exalted. The Lord deserves exaltation. And so Peter writes his letter to people that the Lord loves, but the Lord loves them with the primary purpose of glorifying himself. When he pours his blessings out upon you, who gets the credit? He does, if we look at it rightly, if we see it the way Peter has explained it, if we see it the way John has explained it, if we see it the way Isaiah or Jeremiah have explained it, when we look at what the Scripture actually says and refuse to superimpose our own fleshly, human-like thinking upon the text of Scripture, ultimately we will see that the Bible is about God. It's about His glory. It's not your handbook to have a better life. It's about God glorifying himself, and in so doing, while doing, while exalting himself, while calling other people to exalt him, in turn, the certain result is the better good of those who will submit to him. This is why he calls you to submit. This is why he calls me to submit. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, right off the bat, Peter puts the light on the Lord. He says, it's the Lord that called you from eternity past. Not as a result of something you have done or something you would do, because he desires to exalt himself. And so, again, this command, this command in this text is not motivated by something other than what Peter's been motivated by before. He's not calling you to a new motivation. He's calling you to love the Lord. He's really calling us back to Jesus' distillation of the commands of the Bible. When asked what is the greatest command in an effort to trick him by an attorney, Jesus' response was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How does man get any credit out of that? It's about God being love-worthy. Second greatest command, to love your neighbor as yourself. You naturally love yourself. You're never commanded to love yourself. The Bible doesn't call you, uh, nor does it uh, condone love of self ever. You won't find that verbiage anywhere in the Bible, but it assumes that you do, and because that's so natural for you and for me. The Lord Jesus says, extend that constant effort to be thinking about self to others. And by the way, in Philippians 2, consider others as more important than yourself. And by the way, in Luke 9.23, deny self. So those commands ultimately result in God's glory. They are for God's sake. Then in verse 17 of chapter 1, 1 Peter, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. What does fear for the Lord do? In the presence of those who look on at those who fear him? Well, in Psalm 40, when the psalmist writes of being in that mucky and miry pit that he can't make his way out of, he needs to be lifted out of that pit. As a result, he sings a song, he sings a new song in his heart. He fears God, and those who look on fear him as well. So there is a certain result that if we address God as Father, the one who impartially judges, 
according to each one's work and conduct ourselves in fear during our stay on earth. God's glorified in that. God calls us to fear him, to have a holy reverence for who he is and the consequences that he says are certain for those who disobey him and who will not submit. Those things are given to us for his glory, for his sake. So it's a matter of loyalty. Think of it this way. When you're called to submit, when I'm called to submit, we should think of it this way. It's a matter of loyalty to God that his children would obey the government. It's a matter of loyalty to him. It's a matter of thinking of it as being for his sake. But it is also what makes you able and willing to submit to governing authorities. The fact that it is for his sake is what makes you able and willing to submit. To governing authorities. Point number three, the measure. The measure of this submission, or you might say the degree or the extent of this submission. Further in verse 13, Peter says, to every human institution. Who's the object? Who is the recipient of our submission? Every human institution. Now, if you were to break this down literally in the Greek, you would see that this could actually mean every human person. But then Peter qualifies it. Peter qualifies it. It doesn't take long for us to see that he's talking about government. This is how he says it. He says it this way because in the context in which he was writing, the Roman government had a king. And that king was the one who had ultimate authority on earth. Again, verse 13 goes on to say, To every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So you say, I have no faith in the government at all. The government just messes things up, and you'll probably every now and then quote Ronald Reagan and say that government's not the solution to the problem, government is the problem. I wouldn't disagree with that. But if this is your response to this command to submit to the government, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. Neither the competence, nor the integrity, nor the motive of the government should play any role in your willingness to submit to the government. It is your hope in the Lord and your desire for his glory that leads you to obeying the government. That's it. You've got two points then when it comes to really obeying the government. It's for God's sake. I must do it. That's what it comes down to. You could hold to the letter of the law and be completely in violation of the spirit of the law, by the way being willing to just kind of check off the boxes rather than obeying what the spirit of the law is. And what if the, what if the king is bad? What if he's evil? That would never happen, right? What if he's a wicked man as displayed in his willingness to be a Romans 1 kind of guy? You know, committed to all kinds of things, evil. Plays no role. Plays no role at all in your responsibility to submit to the government. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, we went through this passage last week. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 
Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So there's a certain result of being willing to root out the contents of your heart, to expose yourself, to be honest about the thoughts of your heart, your heart attitude, to, to do away with those sinful attitudes. And then secondarily, to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And this is really what these good deeds are that Peter is talking about in this text before us this morning. We are to submit to every human institution We are to be committed to obeying governmental authority, to know what the laws are, and to be willing to submit to them, not because they are good in and of themselves, and not because those who have established those laws are good in and of themselves, or that they had a good motive in producing them, but because this pleases God, because this is for His sake, and it leads you to finding favor with Him. The added benefit is that this is for your protection if you do right. Yeah? You see that in the text, don't you? This isn't the motive. Peter doesn't say do it because of this, but he does say if you are to submit to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So there's a strong sense in which, and if you read through the book of Proverbs, you see that this is kind of how it works. To the degree that you really do what you ought to do, your life is going to be relatively trouble-free. That's not to say that God in his sovereign grace is not going to discipline you. It's also not to say that he's not going to apply difficulty in your life. The book of 1 Peter shows us that. It is God's will that you suffer. It's God's will that you suffer, 1 Peter 4, verse 19. And that's not because he desires to make your life miserable. It is because he knows what's best and he knows that it is suffering that's going to result in your need to determine where you trust, what you believe in. Will you trust in having a good, decent, trouble-free life or will you turn to the Lord? And without trouble, that'll never happen. It'll never happen. If you are not faced with difficulty in this life, you will never really trust the Lord. I've often said a trouble-free person is a person who has not become of much value to anybody. If he hasn't experienced the difficulty of needing to trust the Lord, why in the world, how in the world could he possibly be a help to someone else who's experiencing difficulty? That's what forces you into the Scripture to determine whether or not you believe what God says about himself, whether or not you believe what he says about what you are to do in light of who he is and who he's called you to be. It's difficulty that brings us to that. It's suffering. It's trial. So are there going to be times where I must not submit? I said earlier, the motive of the governmental authority, the goodness or lack thereof, has no bearing at all. But there are times in the Scripture where there are those who have disobeyed the commands of man. I think maybe the most notable or maybe the most um, consistently addressed issue is what do I do in the workplace if my boss requires me to lie? I think if you have good favor with your boss, chances are he knows you're not going to do that. Maybe you'll be tested from time to time. But of course you're not going to lie, right? At least in obedience to the Scripture. God's not calling you to submit to an authority. And by the way, this text is not about the workplace. We'll, we'll get there. But whether it's a governing authority or a person in your life who has some degree of authority in another context, 
No, you never disobey the commands of God. And so if you're being required, in essence, by an authority to disobey the commands of God, then of course you don't do that. But what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There's a perfect biblical example of three teenage boys who were required to bow down before the king and worship him and Daniel. And what was their response? Well, well no, we're not going to do that. Of course we won't do that. They were committed. We, we don't worship anyone except the Lord. And so what was the result? They were thrown into a furnace of fire. God miraculously saved them from that, but he will miraculously save you from whatever circumstance, ultimately, because you're going to spend eternity with him, worshiping him. So we, we ought to be willing to say, I'm not going to worship anybody else. If a king calls us to worship him, it could happen. Am I right? It could happen. The way things are looking in our world today, that could happen. You could be required to bow down to a false god. And I suggest that you start readying yourself now. I'm not making any predictions, but the fact is that you and I have idols from time to time, maybe more regularly than we would like to confess, that are false gods that we ourselves choose to bow down to. That ought to strike thought in our hearts regarding getting ready for the day if and when there's going to be a governing authority that's going to require us to bow down to a false god. So, of course, that's a situation where you would not obey the governing authority. What about the Egyptian midwives who saved the lives of countless children by refusing to obey the command to slaughter them the moment they're born? Their excuse was, well, these Hebrew women, they just pop them out so fast, we can't even get there in time. But these Egyptian midwives disobeyed governing authority. It was a very clear command of the governing authority to kill these babies. And so, so there's one example. The life of Daniel of course, is very similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, commanded to worship a king, not the king, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I think another tremendous example is is in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Remember, we're looking at the measure, the measure of your submission. To what extent, to what measure does this obedience go? In this text, it is unto governing authorities. But to what measure do I extend that submission to governing authorities? In Acts 4, verse 13, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here is a, a rich and really perfect example of where a governing authority has said, don't do something. And it was not only okay, it was right. It was submission to God to disobey that command. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Puts it back on them. Verse 20, For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. This isn't because they're apostles. This is because they're Christians. You cannot stop me from speaking of my love for the Lord 
Jesus Christ. This is the heart attitude all of us ought to have. In the moment that someone says, you can't talk about the Lord, the right response has to be, well, no, I have to talk about the Lord. Now, we'll get into this in more detail in the coming weeks as we look further into the text of 1 Peter. The mandate for you to do your job at the workplace is just that. You do what your boss tells you to do. But on your own time, if someone is telling you, if the government is telling you, don't talk about the Lord, then clearly your response, just as Peter and John, has to be, well, I can't stop speaking about what I've seen and heard. I can't do that. The text goes on to say, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Peter and John didn't know they were going to be let go. They didn't, they didn't do what they did, saying, well, this is cool. We'll, we'll get out of this just fine. They were well aware of the fact that people were, were being killed for their devotion to Jesus Christ. So yes, there are exceptions, but I think they're extremely rare. And the clear exception is obviously where someone in authority is commanding you to do something that violates a command of God. You can't submit to governing authorities holding to the spirit of that command while disobeying God's command elsewhere in the Scripture. Further in verse 14, the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This is what we hope to see in government. Our government is still relatively committed to this. Any secular government is committed to this for the sake of the fact that men and women get together and say, hey, we're going to have community interaction and we need to keep things in order to some degree. So every government under heaven has had some devotion to this, some more than others. Uh, remember, though, that God loves you. Remember that he loves you and he is your father and what he commands of you is for his sake, but for your sanctification. It's for his glory and your good. It is for your exaltation of him, but it is for your exaltation in him. Your exaltation of him, your exaltation in him. In 1 Peter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Why? Verse 4 goes on to say, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The fact that God has established government is revelatory of the fact that he loves his children. He has love for all mankind, and that love is reflected in the establishment of government. And primarily, the design of government and the practice of many governments is to praise those who do good, but to apply discipline, to apply punishment to those who do evil. God has moved on men's hearts to establish government for that purpose. And so to a large degree, we experience the benefit of that in our nation. We should thank him for that. We should thank him that to whatever degree we see the government clamping down on those who, who rebelliously commit evil and rewarding those who do good, we, we must thank him for that.
But just for a moment, let's do talk about your driving. How does this apply? Like I said earlier, there's the matter of the spirit of the law and there's the matter of the letter of the law. What is the design? What is the purpose? I really hesitated to talk about this, but I think it can be helpful. Let me ask some questions. Does your driving create undue danger for those in your vehicle with you or others on the road? See, the design of governmental laws when it comes to driving are for primarily the safety of those on the road. Do you signal before you change lanes, allowing time for others to actually know what you're doing, or do you signal and move at the same time, taking others off guard? This needs to be practical. How do you think about the command to submit to governing authorities? The command to obey the Lord. Let me ask you this. Are you aware of your surroundings when you drive? Or are you more aware of the donut you're eating and the razor you're using to shave your face? Oh, and by the way, your phone that you're texting with. Do you drive with the flow of traffic or are you drawing attention to your vehicle and creating danger for others by driving either too fast or, yes, too slow? spirit of the laws given to us by the government are for your safety and ultimately for God's sake. The purpose of these laws is ultimately to produce safety on the road. Your willingness to submit to those laws are not to be able to say, I drive 55 miles an hour and I never go one mile ahead of that. I am a good Christian. I obey the laws. That's not the idea, because you've got other issues if that's how you think about this and operate in light of this. The issue is, are you submitting to the law? Are you in submission to governing authorities in such a way that truly honors the Lord? Now, let's get deeply theological by looking at Romans 13. You probably knew we were headed here. It has to be addressed. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person, every person, is to be in subjection, in submission to the governing authorities. So there is no authority except from God. Did you know that there is no authority except from God? So the bumper sticker that says, don't blame me, I didn't vote for, fill in the blank, really kind of ignores the reality that God has determined who is going to be in governmental authority. It doesn't mean you shouldn't vote. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do everything you can possibly do to ensure that the, the right person be elected in terms of what you think are good, solid moral standards and what's best for uh, the city and the county and the, the nation, etc. But God has determined all authority. You say, well, what, what about King Saul? Exactly. He's the first example that God explains. You got Saul because you asked for Saul. So the fact that God gave Israel King Saul is a result of the fact that they were not interested in God being their king any longer. Give us a king like the pagan nations. Everybody else has a human king. We want a human king. So they got what they asked for, and they were sorry that they asked for it. Verse 1 goes on to say, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Does this help? This should help. This should help you and me to understand that when God calls us to submit to governing authorities, he's calling us to do that for his sake. And oh, by the way, he put them there. 
He placed them in that position. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. It doesn't mean you can't speak your opinion about the character and the inadequacy and the incompetence and the seeming motive of those in office. We'll see more about that further down into this text, but you must do it respectfully. You must do it in such a way that honors the Lord. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Sounds very much like our text this morning, doesn't it? Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. You want to be able to look your friends, your believing brothers and sisters, your children, your neighbors, you want to be able to look them in the eye and say, I've got a clear conscience about my submission to governing authorities. You know, they're watching. They know whether or not you obey governing authorities. They know how you talk about them. They know what your attitude is. You want to have a clear conscience. You want to be able to say that what I am committed to is right, and it's proven not only in my heart but in my conduct. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God. A minister of God, the government is a minister of God. Here it says that they are a servant of God. They don't know it, but they are. They are doling out his justice in how they operate, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let me just remind you that the privilege that it is for you and me to be involved in submission to governing authorities is an exclusively Christian call. If you look back at Romans 13, you see that every person is called to subject himself to governing authorities. But the command for you and I to submit to governing authorities has an exclusively Christian motive behind it. And that's for God's sake. That ought to make all the difference. Father, thank you for the richness and the clarity of your word that we would see the joy of trusting in you while obeying those whom we can't trust. We trust you, so we do what you've told us to do, knowing that you know what's best. I often think of the multiple conversations I've had with my children where I've done what I can to help them understand how much I love them. They know that. They see it. They know how my wife and I serve you and how we serve them. We want them to realize that the commands that we express to them, the requirements in our home and wherever else we go as a family or where they go with or without us, that the call upon their lives is to honor us, uh, to accurately represent our character, and, and they will certainly do that by default. So Lord, we pray for us this morning as we, we look at that human illustration, the fact that there is a desire in our hearts, whether we are children or parents, to honor our parents. If, if parents, it is our desire for our children to honor us. But ultimately, all of that is simply illustrative, intended to depict what it really looks like to honor you. 
that we would do what we do for your sake. Father, help us as we go from here this morning to remember, help us as we spend time together today over fellowship and perhaps prayer and even singing and spending this time together that we, we would be reminded to think what we think for your sake, to say what we say for your sake, to do what we do for your sake. You're a good God who loves us. Lord, we ultimately want to honor you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.